Hello and welcome to the podcast, Are We Nearly There Yet? My name's Professor Andrew Sherry and I'm interested in people's journeys to discover who they are and what they're made to do. We can all learn something from other people's stories, so join me on another adventure. Follow what you're passionate about. If you enjoy something, it makes it so much easier than, than the topics that you struggle to, to achieve with. Today I'm talking to Dave Goddard, who is a fellow at the National Nuclear Laboratory, a technical specialist in nuclear fuel manufacturing with over 25 years of experience supporting plants and fuel developments in the UK. When Dave isn't working on the next generation of nuclear fuels, he likes to run and he has an allotment uh, where he grows his own fruit and veg. He lives in Manchester with his wife Yaddy and two boys one who's just had his 21st birthday and the other who's 14 and at secondary school. Welcome, Dave, and thank you for joining me. Thank you, Andrew. Happy to um, be here and uh, contribute to your podcast. Thank you. Um, You grew up in Cambridgeshire, which sort of sounds lovely and idyllic. Tell us what it was like. What were you like as a boy and what was it like growing up there? Uh, well, it, I, I was actually you know, brought up really in the countryside, um, so it was a, it was a rural environment. My parents had a, a small um, small holding. We kept chickens, so we had about a thousand free range chickens, uh, and most of my time was spent mucking them out and collecting eggs and grading them and things like that. Um, so I suppose it, it was unusual for me to to actually have a bit of, I suppose, a spark of academic uh, in me. Uh, Certainly no one from my family had ever been to university before. Uh, And so I was the first who, um, you know, I I guess found some of the, um, particularly things like maths, um, quite easy to come by. So I I did really well at primary school and my mum particularly was keen to push me to to, to better things, I suppose. And uh, I remember at uh, finishing primary school, I was due to go to the local comprehensive, as you did. You know, it was all sort of set out for you. Um, but there was a, a private um, independent fee-paying school nearby. And um, they, they had some scholarships. Um, and so I was put forward, uh, took a, an 11 plus um, to, to go to this school. Uh, and, you know, in amongst... There were a handful of scholarships and about, I think, about 200 people taking the test. And, and I got one of the scholarships, um, which my mum was absolutely made up about because she could see I'd go to a, um, a better school, as it was uh, at the time. Um, but between the time I got awarded the scholarship, the, the government changed some scheme or whatever, and they abolished them. Um, so within a couple of weeks of thinking I was going to go to this really posh school. Um, it got completely um, wiped out and uh, we didn't have the funds to pay for me to go there. So I just went back to the local comprehensive uh, and carried on my education as, as normal as it were um, and just picked up where I left off. But I, I suppose I always enjoyed um, the sciencey subjects, the maths and physics and chemistry and, and um, mainly because I suppose they just came easy to me uh, at the time. 
I'm just interesting that in that moment when you discovered you thought you were going and then you weren't, were you disappointed? We, clearly your mum and your family must have been. I, I think at, at that age, it probably didn't have so much of an impact on myself. I think my, my parents were were disappointed I, and I you know, held a grudge against the particular politician who I shan't name, who, who was responsible for this <laughs> abolition, if you like, or impacting. But it does, it makes you think actually, you know, those, those sorts of moments were, were sort of turning points in your life and it could have gone one way. I've never really thought too much about, well, if I'd have gone to that school, what what would I be doing now? Could have turned out completely differently, but uh, we'll never know. No, that's right. That's right. And was I mean, I'm just thinking, because you were the first one you said in your family to go to university. Did you think the assumption was that you would go into looking after the small holding and stuff? Um, I guess that it, it was a family thing. So, you know, my, my dad had inherited um, some land from my grandfather who had a larger farm and uh, and he'd sort of set up a business on his own so there was a little bit of expectation I suppose on on me but not not too much pressure Uh, and I think uh, certainly both my parents were very supportive of me um, you know following an academic path as far as it it would take me I suppose yeah Um, yeah I can see why you run an allotment now. It runs in your blood, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Good. So um, you did follow the science route to Sheffield University and you, you went there to study physics. So I guess that was quite a big transition from living, you know, on a small holding in the countryside in Cambridgeshire and going into Sheffield University. How did you find it? Yeah, well, it was, as you say, um, the transition from going from a country life to uh, the middle of a city um, was something to just to adjust to uh, all the people around you. Um, uh, but I, I think the biggest thing I, I felt, and I, I'm sure a lot of other people feel doing that transition is that you, you, you know, it's quite a tough transition because you've got no friends, so to speak of when you arrive there's that sort of a bit of homesickness, a bit of loneliness initially until you start to make friends and realize that everyone else is in the same boat as you. Uh, and, and you build up that sort of camaraderie amongst your, your um, fellow uh, students at the time. So I, I actually really enjoyed Sheffield as a, both as a city um, and also the course itself. Um, you know, it, it, was, it was a red brick university. They, they ran a good, uh, physics course the teachers and the tutors were very good and um, some of them you know quite inspiring uh, some of them shocking but you know that you get that in any university um, a mixture you do it, exactly so what were the sort of were there one or two little standout moments for you as an undergraduate in Sheffield that you can look back on and think you know that that had an impact on my later decisions or I learned something about myself at that point uh, well, I ought to mention I, I met my future wife at the university as well, so that that was probably the standout moment I suspect. Um, uh, aside from that, I, I I found actually with university, but one thing that I was always very good at was um, uh, sort of memorising things, and uh, it, it, I, I found actually going through university relatively easy. 
because if you had a good memory and you had good recall of things, you, you would do all right. So I, I, I found things like, you know, the exams um, where we'd have to you know, derive the energy levels of a hydrogen atom from first principles from Schrodinger's equation. All it is is just a collection of um, equations that you have to link together and, and being fairly logical and mathematically minded, it's relatively straightforward to learn that and reproduce it. So I, I, I actually found that bit quite um, easy, but then I suppose it was slightly less fulfilling because you can learn things like that, but you're not really, I suppose, understanding the topic um, in, in a way that you get the meaning out of the topic. So I always, in some ways, struggled with the understanding of quantum mechanics. You know, you, you could understand what the equations told you, but actually picturing it in your mind, what happened inside an atom or around an atom, it, it still, I, I struggled with that part of it. Um, and I think some of the things like that sort of made me question a little bit about physics as a topic, I suppose. I, I was interested, but I was always struggling to, to necessarily see the applications at the end of what I was learning. Um, so sure, I, I knew how to derive the energy levels in a hydrogen atom, but so what? <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's really interesting that that connection between what you're being taught and what you're reading and answering exams on and the real world. I mean, I was going to do physics at university, but didn't get the grades. And actually that was the best thing that ever happened to me because, you know, they put me into material science basically. And I loved it because I could picture it. You can pick up bits of material and look at them under the microscope and it's tangible, you know, but I, I mean, I just couldn't, I mean, you say it's sort of um, e easy to work with these equations and things like that and, and, and come out with, with, you know, the sort of answers to the questions. But I guess that's something that you find easy. It would be something that I would find nigh on impossible, I suspect, you know, because I don't have the brain in terms of memory or I don't think in equations, but you must do. I, I, I don't, I suppose it's just, just an inbuilt thing. I, I remember at, at secondary school, we used to do um, sort of ridiculous memory things. Like I, I could recite pi to a hundred decimal places. Yeah. 3.1415926. Stop there, stop there. And it's it still of, there. You can still do it. I, I, I can get so far with it. And, and Fantastic. It was sort of memorizing all the capital cities of the world. That, but I, I, so, so I suppose that's just something about me a little bit. Um, uh, and I suppose that we, we always sort of err towards the things that we're quite good at. So, um, so that's why the maths and the, the sciences were the things that I, I kind of wanted to do. So you did finish. I want to come back to this memory and this recall that you've got, actually, um, and your ability to learn things. Is that something you find helpful now? I mean, I know I've worked with people who are sort of subject matter experts. We'll call you a subject matter expert in, in nuclear fuel. And occasionally you get certain people who will pretty much remember, you know, every report, every experiment that was done and can sort of bring that to mind when you know looking at a particular problem of today you know it's almost like they're they've got a library in their heads of everything they've ever looked at or been involved in and they can pull the right report out of you know the right file in their brain and explain 
what was the result and why is it relevant now? Is that, is that something that you find for yourself? Um, to, to, to some extent, I, I think the, the memory thing to me is, is about, um, uh, it, it's more like memorization techniques. You know, there are techniques that you can use to, to memorize. So if you, if you on purpose want to remember certain things, you can, there's a way of doing that. Um, what you're suggesting talking about there is a little bit more about having that data bank and you can pick it out at will. That's a little bit more difficult. I struggle like everybody in, in that I've forgotten what I might have done last week sometimes. And, and I think as you get older, obviously you're accumulating more and more. So I think sometimes the data bank that you have gets full up. So, uh, but, but, you know, like, like us all, you know, you're, your, your technical expertise is built on your experience, really. Everyone's different and, and we all have various bits of information we can go back to in the past and pull it out if it's relevant um, to, to the sort of topic in question at the time. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's absolutely fascinating that to me. Um, anyway, so you, you finished at, at Sheffield, you got a good physics degree and then you worked at AWE for six months. Just tell us a little bit about that and, and how you felt going in there, but you also didn't stay very long. So just interested in your journey at that point. Yeah, I, as I say, I, I was sort of toying with a PhD at the time. Um, and, but at the same time, there was this lure to, to earn some money um, and, and to get out of the university environment. So I started applying for jobs and, uh, I got an interview down at the at Aldermaston uh, and, and kind of fell into the job, actually. I didn't really set out to go there. Um, I wasn't particularly anti or pro um, uh, nuclear weapons at all, but it was it seemed a physics-y type of job. So I, I thought I'd be using my skills. And uh, so I, I got there and I found, uh, I mean, the people were good. Um, it, it was a, you have to remember, this was the, still the Cold War. It was in, in place at the time. There was very much a need to know basis. It was quite a, I say, civil service type um, impression. And, and I didn't really feel it was, um, you know, I would say not, not stretching me, but I, I wasn't really comfortable there. Uh, and, and actually, it, the other factor in my life as well was was my girlfriend was in Manchester and I was in Berkshire, so it was it was it was a long distance commute to to go and see my girlfriend and it got to the point where I had to make a choice actually whether um, whether I was going to continue the relationship or continue the job. And I couldn't do both at the same time, so I, I made the choice and I, again um, started looking around at that time for. Um, PhDs that might be of interest because um, at that point I thought well perhaps I will um, go back in and do some more and, and get more into the research area um, and, and that's how I turned up at uh, University of Manchester in in the Corrosion Centre which uh, which I know you know very well. Yes that's right with, with uh, Professor Stuart Lyon as your supervisor on high temperature corrosion of superconductors. Wow. So how did that feel? Because I guess that was, was that less equations and more experimental work? It, it was. Um, and 
I, I think during the PhD, uh, sorry, uh, during the degree, a physics degree, uh, we, we, I, I must have done, I think I did a report or something, a review of high temperature superconductors and they, they just emerged um, that they or just been discovered as it were uh, at that time and uh, this wonderful um, idea that they, they only needed to be cooled in liquid nitrogen and not liquid helium to be useful um, and, and that was a, a significant breakthrough so um, so they, they were sort of topical and um, so there was a PhD going the fact it was in the corrosion center wasn't wasn't something I particularly set out to to do it was more the the superconductors were um, something I knew about and was was quite interested in them uh, and then I, I remember talking to Stuart at the time and, and saying well is this is this right for me because I, I, I'm a physicist and and he, he was you know, very pragmatic about it he says yeah we we want all sorts of people with all sorts of backgrounds in the in the group you know so you've got chemists physicists materials people um, and corrosion science sort of bridges a lot of topic areas so you you, you, you wouldn't feel out of place being in that sort of environment and uh, yeah I, I, I kind of enjoyed it I, I think I must my reflection with the PhD is probably the hardest thing that I've done um, just because it's so intense and it, it's quite a personal thing the PhD you're you're doing it for yourself very much um and so you kind of push yourself uh, for your own benefit almost uh and uh so i, I did i wouldn't say i struggled through it i had a um i got off to a good start i've got some good results under my belt i had a dodgy middle of the phd where i went down some rabbit holes that weren't useful and then in the last six months, I collected all my data that actually contributed to the thesis, uh, and then, um, you know, about five, six months to write it up and uh, uh, sealed it up inside the three years. Fantastic, and uh, you're you're absolutely right about a PhD, and it sort of goes back a little bit to what you were saying at your undergraduate, where you're sort of learning things and you 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 memorising things, but you know, so that you can answer the exam question you know, with the model answer that you've been taught. But the thing about a PhD that people may not realise is you have to actually move the boundary of knowledge. That's part of how you assess a thesis, isn't it? You know, what do we know now that we didn't know before? And that's a very, very different sort of test. And I always say that a PhD tests you as a person as much as your quality as a scientist, because you're not simply doing experiments and getting results. You're having to you know, again, what you said before, understand, get under the skin of the data. Why is the data, you know, as it is and that sort of thing. So anyway, you, you submitted and you had a viva and you got through that. So fantastic. Uh, and then it was a case of, so I, I think I might need a job now. Um, so tell us, what, why did you end up at BNFL at Springfields? Was that the preferred place or the first place or what was it? No, it was the last place. <laughs> but you're you're quite right. I, I got to the point, finished PhD, and and um, I, I was a penniless student, uh, and decided I need to earn some money, and uh, I started applying for jobs. And it was it was the early nineties, um, so we we were there was an economic downturn at the time. Uh, jobs were hard to come by. I, I applied all over the place, um, uh, Shell and CGB. EP, those sorts of 
um, big big organisations, and uh, I, I think I'd I, I was it was getting I was getting low on op options at that point, and um, there used to be a joke in the physics degree that if you ran out of physics options, you could always do chartered accountancy because you were numerate, uh, and if that was too exciting for you, there was always being an actuary, which was the, probably the most apparently the most boring job in the world. I'm sure it isn't, but um, uh, and I, I was I was seriously contemplating chartered accountancy as a as a career option at that point, just just to find something um, that would pay me some money to do it. Uh, and I remembered then that I I'd, I'd sent an application to BNFL and I hadn't received a, a response. So I, I phoned up and uh, uh, the guy, uh, John Gray, who, who was um, the, the sort of recruitment manager in BNFL answered and he, he said, oh, we, uh, we might just have a position actually. You know, so, sorry, we hadn't replied. Uh, I was expecting the so, sorry, you know, we're not interested, but uh, he said, uh, we, we might just have a place for you up at Springfield. Do you want to, can you come up next week for an interview? And and that's it. Yeah, I, I went up, I got interviewed and got offered the job. Uh, so I think it was fortuitous, I'm sure, is, is, the, is the answer. It certainly wasn't a, a design in my head that I wanted to do nuclear science. I wasn't particularly pro or anti-nuclear at the time. Um, it, was, it was just a job that I thought the skills that I developed with my PhD could be applied in some way. I, I knew they didn't have anything to do with high temperature superconductors, um, but they might want someone with some corrosion experience, perhaps. Yeah, that, that was the thinking. Yes, yes. And, and it must have suited you, I guess, because you've been at Springfields for quite a few years now. Um, tell us about how did your sort of career unfold there? What were the sort of things you were doing in the early days and, and what were the options around career development for you? Yeah, I, it was it was a really interesting. I, I mean, I, I really feel fortunate when I, I sort of landed that job because uh, I, I was recruited into what was called the Company Research Laboratory. Um, now, BNFL at the time was probably doing the opposite to every other big organisation of setting up a, a research lab, which was outside the core businesses. So most of the R&D departments in BNFL were associated with the plants and the processes, and they used to support the plants. Um, but the idea of the core company research laboratory was to actually take people away from the front line and to give them the space to um, really think of you know, blue skies research and uh, out of the box thinking. And so there were some really exciting programs of work going on in, in that lab, which was just being set up at the time. So we were right in at the start of, of setting up something new within the organization as well. There were about 40 people who had been recruited. Um, most of them, at my sort of um, career position, just finishing PhDs or, or early, um, uh, early career people. Uh, so it, it was a real um, interesting sort of melting pot of, of young professionals who are all aspiring to reach the top, um, uh, but also doing some really fascinating work. And I remember, I think, you know, the first day I arrived today, um, I, I didn't find out too much at the interview about what I would be doing. But when I arrived, they said, well, we've just bought this thing called a, a scanning probe microscope. Um, 
and uh, they're, they're really new. Not many people have them, and, and we just thought you might like to learn how to use it and and develop a program of work around it. So I learned how to use that, became a fairly expert. I think within six six months, I was publishing papers because with with a new technique like that, pretty much anything that you look at and and image is new and and is publishable. So we were. Um, I was doing work on um, bacterial uh, biofilms. So there, there was programs of work, a biotechnology program, looking at how bacteria could um, uh, be used to decontaminate um, plant surfaces like steels and concrete, um, because they, they could sort of eat away at the uh, contamination. And we were using this um, uh, scanning probe microscope to, to sort of image the bacteria in their native uh, condition, because you, unlike a, an electron microscope, they didn't have to go into a vacuum system and be dehydrated. So this was a sort of a novelty around the system. Uh, and it also had very high resolution. You know, in principle, you can get to, to sort of atomic level imaging. Uh, so that there was a lot of interesting stuff going on at the time that, that I really, really enjoyed. I, I mean, it, it culminated, I, I suppose, Around 1996, I think it was that uh, I was working with a, a guy from Portsmouth University who was working on these biofilm projects, and uh, it was at the time that NASA announced that they found life on Mars, and um, through through you know the these fossilized bacteria. Uh, and we got in touch with NASA and, and said we might be able to help you out because we've got this new equipment. And uh, and so they sent us a piece of their meteorite. Um, so this was Martian meteorite arrived in Preston, and uh, I suppose that was that was my 15 minutes of fame um, because it, it got onto local media and, and press and things like that. Um, and we did, um, you know, for for a, a year or so, um, published a few papers. Uh, went out to a conference at the Johnson Space Centre. Uh, met the NASA guys and got the T-shirt, all the rest of it, um, and yeah, the, the opportunities that were available to us in BNFL in those days. Um, it was a very forward-looking company looking to diversify what it was doing, uh, and we were given that freedom to to go and do things that nowadays it probably isn't seen as being necessarily core to the business and therefore why are you doing it sort of questions uh, <laughs> well but i mean i think the, the most amazing thing about those sorts of opportunities is you're developing as a scientist and at that age and having got through a phd and all you know how tough it was and everything you're like open to anything you know if you can do a phd you can look at martian rocks and you know and all of that sort of stuff and learn how to use new, new equipment and become the best person in the uk or even the world at using it so it develops you as a person and it must have really given you a, the science bug the research bug and i guess was that one of the reasons why you've sort of stayed in on the technical side well yes uh, i i certainly enjoyed you know who, who wouldn't enjoy doing that sort of thing um and i i did find that you know, the, the microscopy area, uh, we, we also had electron microscopy coming into the lab um, and, and sort of the, the sort of understanding of materials and how materials behave. Um, 
it, it, it became more uh, more real to me, if you like, than some of the abstract concepts in the physics world. Uh, and so I, I, I kind of, I think, just naturally gravitated towards those sorts of um, uh, problems, if you like, and those sorts of areas. Uh, and yeah, I, I think I, I, I enjoyed it to the extent that I didn't really want to let go of doing that technical work, even though, um, you know, around me, lots of other people were, were in a similar position who were sort of trying to find ways to move up to the next level of management or, or into, um, into non-technical positions to, to further their careers. Yeah, it, it, it always fascinates me this because, um, you know, on, on the technical side, you do want to have a career path, but often the option, the only option that's open to you to progress in a career is up the management line. And it's, in some ways, it's a selfish decision to stay technical because you're not, you know, contributing to the business in other ways. But in another sense, it's so fundamentally important for the industry who needs technical excellence and people with the experience and the technical knowledge and understanding and wisdom that comes with time to make technical judgments about really important things like nuclear fuel. Yeah, and, and I, I think at the time, uh, you know, obviously different people are different and, and some, I, I was just minded to stay technical. And I think I was also fortunate. I think I got a, I got a sort of a promotion in, in sort of a within position promotion so that I, I was being rewarded for what I'd, I'd achieved. And, and that gave me satisfaction, not not just you know, the financial benefit that came with that. It was a recognition um, that I was doing a good job. I was contributing to the organization and that actually I didn't need to move to progress. I, I could stay where I was and I was happy to do that. So, um, so yeah, I think things were, were, were going pretty well. I, and then, then of course, um, the company research lab shuts. <laughs> uh, BNFL did did what lots of big organisations do: is uh, on the one, uh, one minute it was wanting to diversify itself, the next minute it decided it needed to focus down on core values and core business. So we were surplus to requirements, effectively, and uh, and so the lab was shut. But we moved into. Um, uh, a new building on the Springfield site, which is where I'm based now, uh, and um, and sort of set up there, and and then switch my focus really more more towards supporting the plant operations because I've been sort of shielded from from doing that with this um, sort of strange uh, company research lab environment. So I, I was more pulled towards the frontline support, which I have to say enjoyed that just as much as some of the the more fundamental research because you knew that you were contributing to the day-to-day -day business uh, and and there was there was usually some money on decisions that you might be making that would would impact the business um, so that different challenges it is it is different isn't it because you um you don't have the luxury of time often you know for a long-term fundamental research program looking at atoms or meteorites or, or whatever it happened to be but you have to exercise your technical judgment and provide advice often based on incomplete information i guess uh, yeah yeah um 
certainly, um, particularly being in the sort of microscopy area, we were doing um, a, a analysis of failures or problems that came up. So um, looking forward a little bit now, so you've been very, very involved in the government's new nuclear innovation program uh, and in the advanced fuel cycle program which is looking to develop the next generation of fuels, maybe the next generation of fuels for the next generation of reactors. Where do you think that program's at now? And from the fuels side of things, what do you think is the top priority? Well, it, it, it's, a, it's a really exciting time to be, be working. I, I mean, through, throughout my career, things that, uh, um, the relationships with government and the nuclear industry has been up and down, as we know, you know they've gone, We've gone through times when they haven't been supportive of, of the industry to now when they are supportive and they recognize the importance for net zero by 2050 that, that nuclear is going to play a, play a role. So there, there are a lot of really interesting opportunities opening up at the moment. I think in the near term, uh, supporting sort of improvements to the um, fuel and cladding materials. So we, we've got programs of work looking at accident tolerant fuel materials and we, we've got a really exciting area at the moment which is um, to, to coat um, the fuel cladding um, uh, with chromium which is, is the chosen sort of material and we're, we're, we're currently sort of scaling that up and we have a, uh, a new coater who, ready to be delivered next month uh, which is able to coat full length um, fuel pins which are, are four meters long so this is this is a really um, sizable um, coater and we, we hope to be able to coat fuel pins to go into uh, reactors uh, and be irradiated in commercial reactors uh, and hopefully that will get licensed and, and become a, a product that is used around the world actually in, in all light water reactor systems. So, so that's one really um, interesting area and the, the other significant area at the moment in, in thinking is around high temperature reactors uh, and the, the opportunities that presents for um, you know, uh, generating things like hydrogen or synthetic fuels out of, out of nuclear reactors because these reactors operate at, at much higher temp outlet temperatures than the conventional reactors. Um, but the fuel there is very different. Um, it's a coated particle fuel and the production uh, processes to make this fuel are completely different to the ones that are normally used for light water reactor fuel um, and they tend to use gelation technologies to produce kernels and then coatings go around the uh, surface of these kernels. Um, so we're, we're currently sort of getting to grips with that technology um, and, and developing um, our own understanding and expertise in it and I, I think that's something for me which is, uh, you know, uh, reflect on is that, you know, there are always new challenges to be had. You, you never get to the end of, uh, of the things that are interesting to work on. And if I'd have thought even five years ago, I'd be leading a program trying to develop um, a, a coated particle fuel concept um, into, you know, and, and to scale it up um, uh, for, for potential use. I, I, I would never have dreamed I would be doing that, but, um, but you know, that, that's what I'm doing. 
That's fantastic, isn't it? And it's something which, you know, we're all looking forward to seeing, you know, a big impact and, uh, you know, not just on net zero in terms of low carbon power, but also on industry in the UK and jobs and all of those sorts of things too. So, uh, and it needs that technical leadership, which is what you're bringing. So it's fantastic. I'm going to take you back to school now. And I'm wondering what one piece of advice you would give your younger self, perhaps they just finished their O-levels or GCSEs and they were setting out on their A-level journey. What would, what advice would you give the younger Dave? I, I think it's always um, at that age. It, it's it's follow what you're passionate about. It, it's always you know that that to me. I've got a a son who's not going to be far off um, making those sorts of decisions. So um, it's always you know of those topics that you're studying, which are the ones that actually you enjoy doing uh, and and have some sort of passion for. Because if if you enjoy something, it makes it so much easier than than the topics that you struggle to to achieve with so so i think that that's the um that's the main thing i would advise that's very good advice dave thanks so much for your time today okay uh, thanks very much and uh, very happy to uh, chat to you today thanks a lot Andrew. if you've enjoyed this podcast To help others enjoy it too, please subscribe on your podcast platform of choice and don't forget to rate and review. Thank you.